All right. So let's go ahead and um, get started here. Um, my name is Rich Procida. I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition. And uh, what I want to do now, we're going to have a presentation by Professor Joseph Dowd on philosophical therapy for political activist. And um, but first, I want to tell you a little bit about the Truth and Democracy Coalition and then tell you about some of our upcoming events. So the Truth and Democracy Coalition was formed to build a pro-democracy movement in America. We educate the public about disinformation, teach um, people to be critical of the propaganda they consume, and provide critical analysis of current events and social issues. We produce media, educational materials, hold seminars and meetings, work with other organizations, organize events and activity, all geared toward building a pro-democracy movement in America. And the coalition seeks to build communities of people of different faiths and ideologies to defend and promote democracy locally, nationally, and globally. We're gonna have our first January 6th Remembrance Event Planning Committee meeting. We put an annual event on here in Whittier, California, in which we raise awareness about what happened on Jan 6, 2021, so that we can keep that in the forefront of people's minds. So we're planning our annual event to remember the attempted coup and the insurrection against the United States Congress. And it's important to remember what happened and to not let the actions of then President Donald Trump and his extremist followers um, overthrow our government and install Donald Trump as dictator for life. So in order to, re to resist authoritarianism, we must keep the events of January 6, 2021 at the forefront of people's minds as we head into the 2024 elections with Donald Trump still the front runner for the Republican nomination, even now. So we're organizing an event in Whittier. We're going to help people organize events in their hometown. So join us by registering at tinyurl.com slash Jan 6th, 2024. My name, Richard Procida. I'm an author, attorney. I, I wrote a book on um, global perspectives on social issues about pornography. I'm the leader of the Truth and Democracy Coalition. I'm going to lead a discussion about women, relationships, politics, and life. And we do this on a monthly basis. In our, and this will be our third nonpartisan red pill men's group. And women are welcome to attend too, and they do attend. And at this meeting, we're going to begin our book study of The Rational Male by Rolo Tomasi. And we're beginning with the first section of the book, The Basics. So to register for that, go to tinyurl.com slash redpillmen. And then um, check out our discussion about what's wrong with men or part one of that discussion, at least. I'm going to be putting out the whole thing and it's entirely the whole hour, hour and a half. But you can check out the first part of that presentation at our YouTube page. And you can get that at youtube.com slash at Truth and Democracy Coalition. And when you go there, remember to like, share, and subscribe to our page. So today we have um, Professor Joseph Dowd, a philosophy instructor at California State University, San Bernardino. And he's gonna teach us logic-based therapy and address the need for progressives to reclaim self-improvement. Uh, Dr. Dowd 
is licensed by the National Philosophical Counseling Association as a philosophical consultant. He's a professor of philosophy um, at Cal State University, San Bernardino. And as a philosophical consultant, what that is, is basically a therapist who uses philosophical reasoning to address emotional problems. And in this presentation, he's going to explain, explain logic-based therapy and how you can use it in your own life. Um, so it's this LBT, logic-based therapy, is especially useful for people uh, who are involved in politics. It helps to diffuse anger, defensiveness, and other emotions that can cause the political dialogue to degenerate into a shouting match. And with its focus, he's also focused on Asian philosophy, and he's concerned that many left-wing intellectuals have turned against the self-help and wellness industries. So left-wing intellectuals, they, they make good points when they criticize self-help and awareness and the prosperity gospel and so forth. However, by abandoning self-help and wellness, the left creates a void that's being filled by right-wing intellectuals like Jordan Peterson. And a lot of what we're doing here is to sort of fill those voids so that people don't turn to authoritarianism and don't turn to conservative intellectuals if we leave this um opening a void this void what um professor dow calls it and maybe you can talk a little more about that but i'd like to introduce professor joseph dow welcome joseph hi thanks for the introduction rich does and does anyone have any any questions like so now i want to kind of I, I know some other people have sent like actual emotional uh, struggles that they have. Uh, but um, for now, I want to open it up for Q&A, see if anyone has just any any questions about LBT or about my my claim, which is that progressives need to reclaim self-improvement. So does anyone have any questions? Well, I have a little question. You know, sometimes, sure. I mean, I recognize that I really wish my mother would have divorced my father much earlier than she did we had to live with that man and and suffer the abuse um so um sometimes but sometimes on the other hand you make a you do make a mistake you know so how does that sort of play into it let's say that tomiko had actually divorced for um not very good reasons how would you mm -hmm. um deal with that yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so, sometimes you will get a uh, a client who who actually like they have genuinely done something worth feeling bad about. Um, and, but then it becomes a question of is there some something else wrong with their reasoning? So let's say that that Tomiko had um, had had, I don't know, let's say that let's make it even more extreme. Let's say that she, uh, or, well, we don't have to say Tomiko, but um, let's say that someone has kids with someone and then and then she doesn't like the responsibilities of parenthood, so she runs off. Okay, abandons the kids. Okay, and let's say that by now, um, you know, years have passed, she has 
Um, and let's say she's actually done her best to try to reconcile with the kids, to let them know that she did something wrong and to tell them that, well, she would like to be part of their lives if they would have her. But let's say that despite doing those things, she still is wrapped with guilt over what she did. Well, in, in that case, I think um, we want to maybe look at the at exactly how that person is condemning herself. So, like, remember my former client's emotional reasoning. If I did bad things, then I deserve to suffer forever. So let's say she, I mean, she, yes, she did something very bad in the past, something that is worth feeling guilty about. But at this point, it's already done. Like, and she's done everything she can to make things right. She, there's, no, there's no more that she can do. So there's really no point in her torturing herself anymore. But let's say she continues to torture herself because she feels like she just deserves to suffer. Well, in that case, it looks she her emotional reasoning would be something like this. And I would uh, maybe question the rule here, say, well, you know, again, <laughs> if someone steals something, would you want them to suffer forever? Right. And that might help uh, relieve some of the urge to just torture herself. Um now it gets tricky because there are cases where someone might have done something bad and they still have things that they need to do to make amends uh, in order to achieve the kind of life or the kind of relationships that they want. They need to make some amends. Well, in that case, it might actually be useful for them to feel some guilt because that guilt might motivate them to do the right thing. And so I'm not, I want to make, make it clear. I'm not all, I'm not saying that whenever you feel an unpleasant emotion, you should always try to get rid of it using this method, because it might turn out that the emotion is actually quite justified. Um, I'm just saying that if you are really suffering from an emotion that's really, that's really interfering with your ability to live your life, then this is a way you can kind of um, tr try, to, try to get back on your feet. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, I have a Kimberly Weinstein yeah. Uh, in the chat and if you do want to put your questions in the chat apparently i'm yeah. able to monitor the chat yes so do that too so she says how do you put this into play when for example you are staffing a booth and some angry conservative person cannot hear what you're saying because they're so angry and making assumptions so can you use this technique in to diffuse this situation um not this technique exa exactly because this is not this is not meant to be used on another person like to fix them if they don't want to be fixed right this is something you'd use on someone who wants to be fixed um now something you could i mean you could employ parts of this in dealing with like say an angry conservative person who's just not listening to you or is very stuck in their views you might for example be able to recognize some some fallacy that uh, they're committing. They might have a world revolves around me attitude where they think everyone needs to think the same way they do, or they might be oversimplifying reality, or they might be making blind conjectures. And in those cases, um, there might be ways you could encourage them to uh, adopt the uh, corresponding virtue. So 
if they're oversimplifying reality uh, or uh, making blind conjectures, you could, well, okay, you, you probably don't want to tell them you need to be more objective because that will just make them angry. Um, but you could, uh, you know, if someone is just making irrational or unfounded claims, then um, you want to try to be the objective one, right? The, the worst thing you can do is kind of go to the opposite extreme and start making, you know, generalizations about conservatives and that sort of thing. So you want, if you're dealing with someone who's oversimplifying reality, you want to try as hard as possible to be the almost kind of like Spock-like objective person who is just kind of looking at the facts and presenting them in a, in a kind of a non-combative way like you know look um would you uh, how how uh you know well if i told you xyz like would that change your view or you know so, something like that um so there are pieces of this that you can use when de when dealing with others but i think this is more useful if let's say let's say that you are um you just got out of a conversation with an angry conservative guy. And let's say you're feeling really angry. <laughs> you're, you're just, you manage to hold it together during the conversation, but afterwards you're just really just upset. Um, you like, it makes you angry that there's someone out there who thinks that way. Um, this is something you could use on yourself. Um, I mean, one thing you might focus on is, okay. So I think if you're getting really upset that there's someone out there who has uh, crazy views. I think you're probably uh, engaging in the world revolves around me thinking where, I mean, th their views may genuinely be crazy and irrational, but insisting that everyone be as rational as you or as, as rational as you think you are um, is just unrealistic, right? Uh, um, you're just not going to find that in reality. And so, um, one thing you could work on is being more empathic, um, trying to see how someone could come to think that way. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them, uh, but just come to try to understand how they became like that. And actually understanding that might put you in a better position to um, change their mind. Yeah, so I, I hope that was helpful. Um, yes. Kellen says, a lot of this feels more about adjusting your way of thinking to manage your emotions more logically, so then you can start acting more logically while still addressing your valid emotions. Yeah, I, I'd say that's true. So I think, I mean, I listed all seven steps. I think really um, what's most useful in LBT, and this can kind of be your takeaway, is v is this step one, identifying your emotional reasoning. So What's your emotion? What's the object? What are you feeling the emotion about? So like, for example, Jerry says, I feel threatened by the US Supreme Court justices. Okay, so the object would be the Supreme Court justices. And the reaction would be a feeling, uh, you know, a, a feeling of fear or uh, of um, anxiety, right? Feeling that you are in danger or the country is in danger. Now, the, actually, that could be a quite justified emotion, right? The problem only would come if, you are, uh, if, it, if it gets to the point where your anxiety is interfering with your life, 
right? You're just not able to live a normal life. Because because look, if if politicians and, and let's be real, Supreme Court justices are politicians, even though they portray themselves as non-political, they are politicians. Like the fact that politicians you don't like are in power is a reason for concern, right? It is a reason to be anxious. The problem only comes if the anxiety is interfering with your life. So let's say you you you're feeling like if there are these Supreme Court justices, then uh, I need to worry constantly, right? I can't let myself stop worrying, or that means I don't really care. And some people do kind of think that way. Uh, then the report would be, there are these Supreme Court justices, and the conclusion would be, therefore, I need to worry all the time. Well, that obvious, okay, so there's an obvious problem with that, and, and I'll tell you what it is. Okay, so the rule is, if there are these Supreme Court justices, or if, you know, fill in the blank, if something bad is happening, then I need to worry all the time. Well, okay. Either if there's if something bad is going on, like with the Supreme Court justices, either there's something you can do about it or there isn't. If there's something you can do about it, then do that right? <laughs> instead of sitting around worrying. Put your energy into actually doing something. If there's nothing you can do about the situation, then worrying is pointless, right? It's actually irrational to worry. So, so in a sense, I, I know this is easier said than none, but uh, in a sense, worrying is is never really a, a rational response. Okay. Well, Galen, Galen seems to ask um, whether this is really only useful on yourself. Yeah, um, I think it's... Um, um, okay, so I would not recommend that you try to use, go through these steps with someone else to help them unless you are a philosophical consultant, uh, unless you've gotten the training. So I was more thinking of you using it on yourself. Um, you know, many people get frustrated and upset and angry because of politics. And my thought was that this could be a way for people to help themselves diffuse their own negative emotions. I wasn't really thinking of this as something you would use on someone else. Um, now, I'm not saying that being familiar with LBT couldn't be helpful when dealing with others. Um, but I, no, I, I wasn't really thinking that you would be using this on someone else. Now, Rebecca says she feels futility over contacting her representatives in Congress and her senators because they're so biased against her point of view. So right. how can she deal with that? Well, so you feel futility. So you might, uh, let's say, let's call that despair. Okay, so the emotion is despair. The object is that it's unlikely that your represent that your um, like letters or whatever will influence your representatives, uh, maybe because they're they have a different political uh, ideology. Okay, and your response is to feel that it's useless. There's no point. Um, so in that case, the rule is: if my representative is unlikely to be influenced by by me, then it's useless to try to influence them. The report is. 
it's I'm unlikely to influence my representative. And the conclusion is, therefore, it's useless to try to influence them. OK, well, first of all, we might question the report. Um, I'm not saying that you would uh, your letter by itself is going to change your representative's vote. That's almost certainly not going to happen. But, you know, politicians, what they really care about is getting reelected. Right. Um, and so if enough people contact them and urge them to to vote a certain way, uh, that might influence them. And so your your communication by itself probably isn't going to do anything. But as part of a bigger group, you can probably achieve something, even if a bunch of people urge the representative to vote a certain way and the representative doesn't end up doing it still. I mean, let, let's maybe I don't know. <laughs> let's be real cynical and say maybe they're being paid off by by lobbyists or something to vote a certain way. So you're so all their all their constituents messages aren't aren't changing their vote. Well, still, now they know that a bunch of people want them to vote a certain way. So if the political winds change so that it then becomes maybe more advantageous to them to vote that way, then they'll, you know, they won't have any hesitation about voting that way because they'll know that that's what their constituents want. Um, so that's one way to look at it. Another way is, you know, if let's look at the rule, if I'm unlikely to influence my representative, then there's no point in trying. Well, you might ask yourself, OK, what you know, is that really true? I, and I guess that would depend on your personal values. I mean, because um, some people say that, you know, I like th there could be people, let's say Democrats living in a deep red state. They know that their <laughs> that their vote uh, isn't going to really do anything, but they still they still see value in voting because they they see it as kind of their civic duty or something. So you might also question the rule. Um, OK, uh, let's see. Any other questions? Let's see. Something just came in. It says, yeah, yeah but at Joseph, more than 70 percent of even Democrats don't want Biden to run again. And he says he doesn't care and will run anyway. Yeah. So, OK, so what you're pointing out is, well, e e even in cases where a bunch of people want something, it doesn't really seem to change the politician's mind. OK, now that's true. I mean, an example I could give you um, is. Did you know that you, you could uh, fact check me on this? Like, seriously, fact check me um, there. Uh, if you look at polling, not only a majority of Americans, but a majority of Republicans think we should raise taxes on the wealthy. Did you know that Like, a majority of Republicans think that? And yet are, are, are the people in Congress uh, either Republicans or really Democrats for the most part? Are they very likely to raise taxes on the wealthy? No. So I, I, I understand where you're coming from, that, that feeling of futility. Um, but again, I, I would say um, it's only possible to make a difference if you get enough people on board. I assume many people here are activists. I mean, that's, that's the job of activists. I'm actually not much of an activist myself, but that, that's a job of activists to try to get people on your side. You, you may not through like writing letters to your senator or whatever, be able to change anything. But 
by trying to by trying to get your message out there, you might change some minds. And if enough people do that, and enough people change minds, then um, and you you get enough people who, who are really um, who are on your side, then as a group, it it could be possible to make change either by electing new people or you know through some other means. Oh, how is seventy percent not enough? Yeah, okay. So and this goes to yeah, another example would be the one I gave where I, I said even a majority of Republicans <laughs> want um, want to raise taxes on the wealthy. Yeah. And you do sometimes wonder, how is that not enough? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I mean, the, why, why it, um, it doesn't always work out. It's, it's because we, we vote for representatives. We don't actually vote on policies. The representatives vote on policies. And so what, what we end up having to do is vote for the representatives we like best. And even if those representatives get in, they may not agree with us on everything. And so, and e they might not even agree with us in cases where, you know, 70% or whatever of the people agree with us. And that's just, that's an unfortunate feature of representative democracy. I don't know how to fix it. Um, frankly, I think, um, uh, I think maybe, well, this is kind of getting off topic, but I think we might, maybe it would be good if we had something like ranked choice voting instead of the winner take all system that we currently have uh that i mean that i personally i think reforming the voting system is the only way we'll fix those problems but again in order to do that in order to reform the voting system you need to get people on board who are, who are going to who are going to be on your side on that issue and so it's still worthwhile to to speak out you might not change your elected representatives but you might change other people's minds and that, and by changing other people's minds, you might help to change the system. I, I want this talk to be as practical and as useful as possible to you. So, um, if, so if I were to leave with you with one thing, I would leave you with the current slide that I'm on. Uh, just step one, where you identify the emotion you're struggling with, the object, the reaction, Re you construct your emotional reasoning. And then what's so useful about that is, is even forgetting about the other steps, just, just see if you can find a flaw in that emotional reason. Usually it isn't that hard, right? Like with Tomiko, we saw, you know, there was a, an obvious problem with her assumption that getting divorced must have been bad, right? Um, and once we laid out the emotional reasoning, it was very easy to see that. So, um, I would leave you with this slide. This is something you can do on your own to, to, to deal with your own emotional struggles. Um, and I, I wish you all um, the best of luck. Uh, I, I hope you're, you're able to, um, to improve your lives with this. All right. Thank you, Joseph. I wanted to uh, make a couple of announcements and then um, it, just remind you about our and Stephanie, if you're here, if you want to talk about Whittier term limits, you can go ahead and unmute and just um, give us an update on on what's happening. If you want to do that, I put in the chat some links to our upcoming events, the um, Whittier planning committee meeting for our Jan 6th event and to do events on Jan 6th around the country. And then also 
our nonpartisan Red Pill Men's Group. You can register for that at tinyurl.com slash redpillmen. And you can register for the planning committee meeting at tinyurl.com slash Jan 6, 2024. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for participating today. Thank you, Joseph, for preparing this wonderful talk. And, welcome. and thank you for coming. All right. Bye, everybody. The latest jobs report shows employers added 339,000 jobs last month, blowing through expectations for May. That is well above even the pace that we had seen in the month of April, which was revised up to 294,000. The jobs count has now beaten estimates 14 of the last 17 months. That's the 29th straight month of job growth in America. There's really no other way to interpret this report as consistent with a labor market which remains incredibly strong. It remains just red hot. It's a great time to be a worker. This is the kind of report that will likely trigger Joe Biden to take a victory lap. So we've been averaging, get this, 341,000 jobs every single month for the last 12 months. It's a pretty startling number. Put simply, I would argue the Biden economic plan is working.